Almighty God, we, we call out to you as we've heard in these scriptures, especially, Lord, in the passage from Isaiah and the passage from Psalm 80 this morning, that we need you to come and restore and renew us, Lord. We, your people, have no uh, inner ability to save ourselves, no ability ultimately to help ourselves. We need a Savior. And so we pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, and speak your word to our hearts this morning through the preaching of the scriptures. Lord, let this be edifying and upbuilding for your church and encouraging for us that we might be your continuing presence in the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. That's right. We are beginning a new year today. This is the first Sunday in a brand new Christian year. We don't tell time like everybody else does. We're just trying to stay as weird as we possibly can as Christians. So the first Sunday of Advent is the first Sunday of the Christian year. And so Happy New Year to all of you. And as we start this new year uh, of, uh, with the season of Advent, one of the themes of Advent is Christ's second coming and his final judgment of the world. And when we hear that, and when we hear about that, it can certainly sound a little intimidating. It can sound kind of threatening. You know, like, uh, hey, y'all, Jesus is coming soon. Look busy. <laughs> I actually saw that on a bumper sticker one time. Jesus is coming soon. Look busy. But one of the legitimate uses of this season, therefore, is as a time of reflection followed by repentance as we seek to ensure that we are, in fact, ready to meet the Lord at His return. However, with everything that has happened over the course of this past year, I just sensed as a pastor that we didn't need so much of a wake-up call to repentance, but a call to hope, a call to hope, a deep longing, even a groaning in the Spirit for God's intervention into history, coupled with hope that He will indeed act is just as much a part of Advent as repentance and self-denial. So let me just say it in a very short way. Hope and confidence in God's deliverance is just as much a part of Advent as repentance and reflection. And so I think the emphasis for us as church this year needs to land on that foot of hope and confidence in God's action. And that's exactly what's expressed here in Isaiah chapter 64, we heard it this morning. Don't you just hear that sense of longing at the very beginning of that text? These words have been ringing in my heart for this entire time of this entire past week. Isaiah 64, verse 1, the first part of that verse, speaking, crying out to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So I want us to start by looking at the setting and the content of this passage and then turn to see how this longing for God to rend the heavens and come down speaks to our particular moment in history right now in 2020 in North America. And then we need to look at how this longing has, has been fulfilled, is being fulfilled, and will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the setting the content of this passage, and then we're going to turn and see how that longing for God to rend the heavens and come down has been fulfilled, is being fulfilled, and will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So the setting for this oracle, 
The setting for this prophecy is that Isaiah appears to be speaking to the time when Judah has returned from the Babylonian exile. And he's writing long before that, but that seems to be the setting here. So right before the reading we heard this morning from Isaiah 64, this is what it says in Isaiah 63, verses 18 and 19. Your holy people, this is God's people crying out to God, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary, speaking of the temple. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And then immediately after the passage we heard this morning, right after those verses, comes this text, Isaiah 64, verse 10 and 11. Listen again to what it says. This is the context. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned with fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. So Isaiah is speaking to a people who've experienced defeat and oppression. They've lost their homes. Their economy is in ruins. The things that seemed unassailable, the temple, the holy city of Jerusalem, have been burned with fire and are in ruins. Everything that seemed to be permanent and stable, everything that once seemed to be permanent, undeniably fixed, stable, is now gone. And I think at some level, we, right here in this room, can connect with that. Now, while we certainly have not experienced anything like the level of devastation and privation here in this passage, we certainly know a little bit of that feeling of losing that sense of permanent things and stable things being, losing the sense of their permanence and stability. The events of the last year produced a sense of loss of stability, a sense um, for many people that they weren't expecting, a sense of mortality. Like, hey, you know what? I could die. And helplessness, and that's been generated by the pandemic. There's a profound loss of confidence in human institutions isn't there. The loss of financial security for those of us who are not able to be a part of the new Zoom economy. You can't do manufacturing by Zoom. You can't provide services by Zoom, generally speaking. There has to be a person there in person. There is a deep uncertainty so many of us feel about the future. And I think I hear that in that passage, and maybe you do as well. But I think there's an even deeper point of connection, and it comes right here in Isaiah 64, verse 6. Listen to what Isaiah 64, 6 says. We have all become like one who is, listen, one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Uh, this week, I heard somebody on a podcast tell of a family that they were friends with who have a daughter in middle school. Now, she, at her age, is, uh, has a, a statistical chance of practically zero, a statistical chance of practically zero of having any adverse effects from COVID-19. Even if she were to contract the virus, there's almost no statistical chance that she would suffer major 
setbacks or in her health at all. And yet, her parents say that this middle school daughter is obsessed with a fear of being, listen, contaminated. Fear of being contaminated. They said, if we go 30 seconds without wiping down a surface, if we all don't wear a mask in the car together, she yells at us. You see, this child has a sense of being unclean and polluted. You know, our secular culture doesn't really have a sense of being polluted by sin, of being morally filthy before a holy God. But we certainly have a sense of clinging, listen, clinging ritual uncleanness associated with this pandemic. And I think I'm seeing the the sort of spiritual quality all around me of this time in which people are having that sense of uncleanness. I'm talking about an uncleanness that is not, listen, it's not actually rooted in the likelihood of infection, but as in the case of that young girl I told you about, is experienced on an emotional level. There's an emotional quality of this. And that feeling of being polluted or fear of touching something that would make you unclean creates this same profound, listen, experience of isolation and even rejection that we heard in this verse. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted, polluted garment. We have a sense of isolation and even rejection. And that sense of pollution is a backdrop in Isaiah 64 for the cry for God to act, to rend the heavens and come down and remove our uncleanness. There's another point of connection here, too. I want you to look at it. It's the very next verse. It's Isaiah 64, verse 7. If you have your Bible open, look at it with me, 64, verse 7. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. So Isaiah in this passage is speaking of a time in which there is a general feeling of, here's the term I would have you uh, listen to, a general feeling of spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy. There's actually a, a term we use historically in Christianity. Nobody uses it anymore, but it's called acedia. But it's that spiritual lethargy. No one rouses himself to take hold of you. There's a general loss that he is describing, a general loss of desire for God, a general loss of hunger for God expressed in this passage. And this is coupled, that sense is coupled with, listen, a systemic uh, perception of the absence of God. So spiritual lethargy and then what people are perceiving as the absence of God. Now, I think that's extremely important for us living right now on the November 29th, 2020, because I think we're in a similar situation. We're living in a time very similar to that. Indeed, all over the once Christian world, there is a spirit, please hear me, a spirit of apostasy a spirit of a great falling away from the faith. We see it in our families. We see it in God's church. 
Our very culture here in the once Christian West is losing its memory of being Christian so that genuine, listen, and I hope this is communicating, but I see this all the time in my ministry. Genuine, passionate faith in Jesus Christ is becoming more and more implausible to more and more people. That seems to be very much like what Isaiah is describing. One, one scholar has said, and this is that sense that's in, uh, in the general culture, one scholar has said, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? And that's the spirit of the age in which we live, and it was the spirit of the age that Isaiah is speaking to following the return of exiles from Babylonian captivity into a land that's now desolate, and where all of the central things of their faith in Yahweh and their worship of God have been destroyed and removed. And so Isaiah, speaking for their voices, saying, Turn your face back to us, God. Turn your face back to us, God. Rend the heavens and come down. Only you... How do we change this situation where the Christian faith, where, where a real living God just becomes more and more implausible in our overwhelmed by entertainment and anxiety world, only God, only you can restore us. You have to act, Lord. You have to act. And do you know what? That, that's the heart cry of Advent. That's the season we're in. If you're not used to Advent, if, you're th if you think of Advent as pre-Christmas, if you think of Advent as Black Friday, God forbid, you know, if you think of Advent as the season for shopping and parties and things like that, you need to know that's not the Christian understanding of Advent. That's a secular, worldly, commercially driven idea of pre-Christmas. But the season of Advent is about that heart cry of, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And we hear it expressed here that God would remember his people and come and deliver them, Isaiah 64, 8 and 9. But now, O oh Lord, listen, this is Israel reminding God as if he needed to be reminded. Uh, now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. In other words, we're helpless. Pots can't pot themselves. <laughs> Pots don't make themselves. They need a potter. We're as helpless as a pot without you, the potter. So be not terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Come and help us. And that's the cry of Isaiah's passage. That's the cry of Advent. But there is good news, brothers and sisters, here on this first Sunday of Advent. God has rent, in other words, torn open the heavens and come down in history. God does rend the heavens and come down in mystery, in history and in mystery, 
and he will rend the heavens and come down in majesty. God has come in history. God comes in mystery. God will come in majesty. And that's Advent. That's what the theme is. History, God rent the heavens and came down in a way that nobody would have ever expected. Nobody was looking for it. That's what we're going to be celebrating beginning right on Christmas Day, beginning on, on December the 25th. That's what we celebrate. And by the way, at Christ Church, we, do, we celebrate Advent. We don't sing Christmas carols before Christmas Day. No, we're really big about Advent. Now, at home we cheat. At home we cheat. Yes, we do. We listen to that. You know, we turn on those Christmas tunes. There is a bare Christmas tree in my house right now that will be decorated before December 25th. So we do cheat at home, but here in church, we take this very seriously. We, don't, we do not sing Christmas carols during Advent. However, when Christmas Day gets here, we do party, and we celebrate, and it is mandatory fun for all 12 days of Christmas. So starting on the 25th, we will be checking in on you and making sure that, that, is not, that you're not those people at the end of Christmas Day with boxes and wrapping all around you saying, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's all over. What are you talking about? It's just starting. And you better party for the whole 12 days. Feast and be merry. And if your friends don't understand, try to explain it to them and invite them to a real Christmas party. God has. God has come to us, and that's what we celebrate. He came down into history. He rent the heavens and came down, and that's what we celebrate on the 25th. God tore asunder the veil between heaven and earth and slipped into human history, slipped into human history through the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The uncontainable, infinite God confined himself. The uncontainable, infinite God confined himself to the womb of a Jewish girl from Nazareth so that Mary herself, by this amazing act of God's grace, that Mary becomes more spacious than the heavens. Glory be to God. You were made more spacious than the heavens, O most pure mother, for God cannot be contained by the whole universe, and yet he chose to be contained in your womb for the sake of our salvation. Ancient Christian hymn. That's amazing. I think of tearing the heavens and coming down, like just rending the clouds back and the sky back and dropping into history, and yet God snuck in through Mary's womb. God and Jesus Christ tore through the heavens in his first advent to die on a cross in our place in order to redeem us from the power of sin, to take away our uncleanness and our pollution and all that separates, him, separates us from himself. God has acted in history to save us. But then God also meets us. He comes to us in mystery. God rends the heavens here. Did you know this? At Christ Church every Sunday, when we gather around the Lord's table, again, in a way that no one could expect, Jesus Christ enters into our very moment through groceries. Stuff like, I mean, we bought this wine at Trader Joe's. All right? And God slips into this moment, rends the heavens and comes down through bread and wine and meets us here at his table. His grace is here in this meal as the medicine of immortality. The medicine of immortality 
to take away our spiritual lethargy and to bring revival to our hearts that are so parched and unbelieving. If you feel like the sucking tide of incredulity, of unbelief is pulling at you all around you every day through lost family and friends, through structures of society that are built on a foundation of unbelief, and you feel like the rip current pulling you away from the belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this point in our week where we come to the Lord's table is a time to be refreshed. And in that moment that the bread touches our tongue and our mouths taste the wine, we connect with the live wire of God's grace and realize that it is all real. God is feeding me. God is in me by His Spirit, and He is filling me through this sacrament. And that's why we do this every Sunday, because we want God to rend the heavens and come down. Majesty. During this short season of Advent, we're reminded that Jesus promises to rend the heavens and come down at the end of the age. We heard it in the Gospel lesson, Mark 13, this morning. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, majesty. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And when he comes again in final victory, that's when Jesus is going to set everything to right. If we have accepted him and have experienced the gift of the new birth, we will be able to joyfully receive Him. It'll be a wonderful day. It'll be the grace. If we are alive and remain to the, to the coming of the Lord, there will never be a greater day in all of human history. When we are alive and gaze up and we, see, we do see the heavens rent asunder, the, the clouds roll back like a scroll, and the Son of Man returning in power and great glory, won't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing to be there for that? We will joyfully receive him. He will wipe away all tears. Death and sorrow will be no more. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia, God appears on earth to reign. And yet, it's, it's still unavoidable that even though Advent is about hope and confidence that God has acted and thus will act again in history, there is also an implicit and even an explicit warning that can't be ignored in this time as we read these passages. Those who reject Jesus and despise Him and His cross will encounter Him on that day not as the glorious returning Savior we've longed for, but as the terrible judge of the universe a verse we did not sing this morning. I do like the fact that we get to sing and that uh, although he comes with clouds descending, my favorite verse has the deeply, deep, deeply wailing, deeply wailing. You just don't get to sing deeply wailing, deeply wailing enough in church. <laughs> I'm being facetious. But, but there is a verse we did not sing, and it speaks to that every island, sea, and mountain, heaven and earth shall flee away. All who hate him must confounded. Hear the trump proclaim the day, come to judgment, come to judgment, come to judgment, come away. But friends, because Jesus has come to us in history, we don't have to face that terrible day without a Savior. 
And so, for those of us in this room and for those of us who are joining us online this morning, the one who is coming as a judge offers himself again and again, even this day, as Redeemer. Right after Isaiah 64, I want you to hear what, what the Lord says. Right after that passage of, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, this is God's response to that cry. Listen, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here, here am I to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. God spreads out his hands to us every day saying, come to me, here am I, here am I. And so we don't have to face that day without a Savior. The one who is coming as a judge offers himself to us this morning as a Redeemer. And so I would have this prayer on my lips if I was not ready to meet him in glory when he comes in glory. Oh, that you would rend my heart and come within. Oh, God, that you would rend my heart and come within and save me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.